Uh, we continue to look today at what it means to be a growing church in a groaning world. Using the book of Acts as our guide, we are in Acts chapter 18, verses 23 through Acts 21, 14, also known as Paul's third missionary journey. We're going to be here for a couple of weeks, Lord willing, looking at this extended passage, sometimes zooming in closer, sometimes looking at the whole. It's a passage uh, that's very interesting. In fact, Luke at the end of uh, the last section, the last few verses before our passage, chapter 18, 19 to 21, uh, he gets from Ephesus where Paul stops for a moment as he's trying to sail back to Syria. Uh, he goes from there to Caesarea, then up to Jerusalem, then down to Antioch, and then back through Galatia and Phrygia, starting the, this next journey, missionary journey, in just a few verses. It's almost as if Luke is in a hurry for us to get from Ephesus the first time when Paul said, I'll try to come back to more extended stay, where in fact Paul stays for a number of years, and it becomes sort of a missionary hub. He writes some of his letters from there, and he ventures forth, ultimately then heading to Jerusalem. But as he gets back here in this passage to Ephesus, it, it becomes sort of a focus on Ephesus, not so much on Paul, but actually on this geographical place, because Paul just gets a passing mention, and then we meet uh, a man named Apollos, and we meet Priscilla and Aquila again, and then there's a riot that Paul barely plays a role in, and then there's a tearful farewell that Paul is central in, and then, oh, so much going on in this section. But ultimately what it's doing is setting us up for what is the end of the story of Acts and the beginning of the rest of the story of God's mighty Acts. They don't end with this book. They continue to this day. And as we come to this passage, we're going to read just verses 1 through 12 of Acts 19. To be reminded what God is doing and how the world responds and how we ought to respond. So would you read with me, please? Acts 19, verses 1 through 12. God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-giving word. Acts 19, 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, 
there were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. This is God's word. Father, would you meet us here Would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to this gracious portion of your word? And would you do your work in us and through us for the glory of your name and the good of your people? In Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, driving through the near suburbs uh, about a week or so ago in that part of uh, Montgomery County there Ardmore on my way I I think I was headed to the Apple store so you have to go into a nice area to get to the Apple store right Um, and there's this this street I was on and I was following the GPS I don't even know what street it was I probably maybe could find it but it was it was a beautiful wide flat road with spacious lawns, uh, beautiful houses, and these massive trees. The, the trees must have been, I don't know, 100 or more years old. Uh, big trunks. You, I couldn't get my arms around them, you know. Massive, maybe six feet in diameter or something, with just going up, up and up in the sky with these big canopies of leaves and this beautiful shade and just it was just this beautiful setting and all of this happening you know and as I'm, I'm driving down the street I realize well it's not just these massive trees and spacious lawns and wide sidewalks and streets and everything there's an awful lot of stumps on this road and I look and it's like big old massive tree and then stump 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 massive stump massive stump massive stump stumps six feet in diameter in that segment of road right between or in that segment of between the road there and the sidewalk and the sidewalks right near them are what you know they're like buckling up you know there's like roots everywhere and you know people's uh, sewer and and water lines and the streets and everything just keep getting bunged up by these massive trees right and I just I just could picture hundred or more years ago when they were planning that development and you know everything was new and they just planted maybe transplanted these saplings right up and down that street just said this will be beautiful you know 10 years or something these trees are going to be flowering and beautiful and provide shade and, and beauty and and sure enough right the, the ones that are still standing I mean they do it's it's amazing and then you get to that point what where sooner or later the benefits of the trees are outweighed by the costs of the trees 
and they start to intrude and encroach on our stuff. It's as if you say, you know, hey, tree, you know, you've just gone a little too far. I liked you for the shade, for the beauty, you know, you, you raised our property values, you lowered my bills with the cooling and everything else, right? But you're ripping up my street and you got to go. And now you have these massive stumps. And so it struck me because the sun was beautiful. And I thought, you know, it, it really, we don't have to have these stumps here. We could, and I'm not, I'm not making like a tree-hugging environmental statement here when I say this. It didn't have to be this way. We could still have those trees. Somewhere, you know, I don't know, 50 years ago, somebody could have noticed those trees are thriving and flourishing. We're not really having to do anything. They just keep growing. How, how do we anticipate where they're going? How do we accommodate and, and, and live around this massive object that's providing a lot of benefits? But no one did that, right? It's like, oh, you know, that's the future. Until at some point, it's just too late. And you really don't see any solution but to cut it off, but to chop it down, but to fight against what was growing and thriving. And I tell you all of that to say basically, this phase in the book of Acts that we are now in, this section of the story from here on out, just especially here in Paul's third missionary journey, we just see this theme of God's massive growth coming into the world, exploding and flourishing and thriving. And what happens? That work, man, it, this massive work of God is like those massive trees, right? It's like, yeah, it's a nice benefit, and sometimes, man, it hurts. It's causing problems. And the world wrestles with that. You and I wrestle with that. God's, God's massive work in the world is eventually, it's eventually going to impact every one of us. And it's important for us to understand how to respond to it, how to anticipate it, how to think about it, how to adjust to it or we will find ourselves, much as the world does, fighting against God. If you think about it, this was foreshadowed by Gamaliel, right? Now, you know, years before, when Peter and John were there in Acts chapter 4, before the Sanhedrin, and he said, look, if you try to fight against these guys, you might find yourself fighting against God. So be very careful, Gamaliel said. Paul didn't listen, and we saw Paul's story as it transpired. Jesus interrupted Paul, and Jesus won. Jesus will always win. God's work will always win. So let's, let's take a look at that here in this passage, at God's massive work here in Ephesus as kind of a lens to see the world and ourselves today and to see what God's massive work is really all about. I want to first look at it from, from the world's perspective. Uh, when God's massive work seems to help, it seems like a good thing to the world. The world's focus 
is revealed to be that of self-interest and personal gain. Now look at verses 19, uh, chapter 19, 11, and 12 again. And we see this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. This is unusual. Luke's language is very clear. This is not normal. This is not something that you know, we ought to practice today or expect today that we could just sew prayer claws into garments and have them be effective. Right? This is, the language here is extraordinary miracles. It is powerful happenings that are unusual. Notice the language too is God, verse 11 says, was performing by the hands of Paul. These things are happening and it's Paul, yes, but it's God. It's God's massive, amazing, flourishing work going on. It's not normal. Continue at verse 13 of chapter 19 and you see the the world sees this as kind of a helpful thing, right? Verse 13, also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So this is the world, right? Using the name of Jesus and kind of Paul to perform magic, basically, as some sort of magic formula. And it's possible these guys are sincere. They want to help people, and they've seen God's massive work through this Jesus whom Paul talks about. It's possible, too, that they were just trying to make some money, get a reputation for themselves. We, we're not sure who this high priest is that we're going to read about here in a second. Look at verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva. A Jewish chief priest were doing this. We're not sure who that Sceva is. We can't find anyone in the records who was a chief priest named that. It's possible that they just kind of made that up. They're in Ephesus. It's kind of far away from Jerusalem. It could be uh, a sincere effort, though, of just a name that was lost to history. But look at verse 15. What happens with these seven sons doing these exorcisms in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, one man, leaped on them, the seven, and subdued all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They were physically beaten up and I am sure demoralized and embarrassed and humiliated. God's doing this massive work and the world who doesn't understand Jesus, those who don't know God, see it as helpful and what do they do? They try to exploit it. They try to use God's name, God's work, for their own personal gain. Even if they're trying to help sincerely, or if they're just trying to make a buck. 
You know, we, do, we, do we not see this in politics? Brothers and sisters, do we not see this where it seems, and I don't want to question the integrity of anyone who professes faith in Jesus, that's between them and Jesus, but I get the impression that just about every politician, when they reach a certain place, especially the level of the President of the United States of America, will invoke the phrase, God bless America, no matter what their personal beliefs are. And whether they're sincere or not, I don't know. But I do hope you realize there's an exploitive nature to that. And both major party leaders in the United States of America in the last couple of presidential terms have done similar things. I'm not saying they're intentionally exploiting God, but you need to remember and be discerning that just because you like someone's platform doesn't mean what they're saying is what you think it is. That in fact, the world, the world by nature will exploit the name of God. And when they can find something helpful, they will use it. They will use you. And both sides do this. I am not picking on one party over another. I'm not picking on one country. Every country will do this. This is in the nature of humanity and our fallenness, brothers and sisters. If there is something good at root, if we are not in a relationship with God, if we don't know God, if we are like this, these seven sons of Sceva, if we don't know God personally, we will use the things of God. Misunderstand. I did this. I was uh, 19 years old working at Pizza Hut. And uh, I barely went to church. I had a foul mouth. I drank excessively. I was proud and arrogant. But I said to my boss at Pizza Hut, since, sincerely, I think, maybe I was just straight up lying. Maybe I was self-deceived, as we often are. I said, yeah, I, I don't work on Sundays. Because it's a religious thing. And they're like, oh, okay. Wow, that's, that's commendable. You know what I did on Sundays? I watched the Eagles. Which actually, now looking back on it, was a religious thing. So maybe I wasn't lying. I needed to not work because I wanted to watch the Eagles. But I kind of couched that in a, what seemed to be a Christian thing or a religious thing. That that's, I exploited a common understanding of things. Even somewhat ignorantly. Please don't mistake that for sincerity. Don't mistake that for anything more than it is, which is that the world on its own is very much about self-interest and personal gain. But on the other hand, that's when, you know, that's when things in the, in, in the God realm seem helpful, right? When they seem hurtful, when God's massive work seems to hurt, the world's focus is revealed as self-protective and eliminating of threats. 
You look at verses 18 and 19. It's an interesting example of God's massive work going on here. Look at verse 18. Many of those who had believed, that is in the Lord Jesus, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And the sense there is of like magic practices and occult happenings. Uh, Ephesus will talk in a future week about just its, 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 its very superstitious worldview. But verse 19 continuing, many of these who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you have any idea how much money that is? 50,000 pieces of silver. One of these pieces of silver they're referring to is basically uh, the wages for one day's work for a laborer. So 50,000 pieces of silver is the equivalent of about 160 years of working six days per week. That's an insane amount of money. That folks came and gave up and said, this is no longer what I identify with. This is no longer who I am. This stuff has to go. I'm going to burn it all up. And you know who's watching that? The shops that sell these things, the merchants who dispense these scrolls, and the, the gurus and practitioners from whom these folks learned it, and they're all watching, and they're just, wow, you guys are insane, what are you doing? And as it said back in verse uh, 17, this became known, all the things that happened with the seven sons of Sceva, verse 17 of chapter 19, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And now this costly giving up of all this material goods from the world's perspective, what does the world do? They don't go, wow, that's great. In part because it's such an economic loss. But in part because behind it is what every human being on earth knows is, is the presence of a true and living God. And it's so obvious he's working here through these massive transformations of people. And in the future weeks, next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this incident that happens in Acts 19, 23 to 41. But it fits in line with these same principles that are going on in this chapter. That 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books burned. And what happens in Acts 19, 23 to 41 is basically there's a riot. Because the silversmiths who make the little statues that people can worship Artemis, and Ephesus is the temple of Artemis, it's, that's, those guys are suffering in their wallets and pocketbooks. Because people aren't buying as many trinkets. They're not buying the household gods to take home and worship them. And they're giving up those practices. And the tradesmen are feeling it. And their economic outlook is uncertain. The economy is heading downward. And they don't like it. And when Demetrius stands up and starts talking about it, about their prosperity is being influenced and their trade is being hurt, and oh yeah, the name of our great god Artemis might be dragged down. And like so many things, that religion of the people and of the world is an identity not really a practice. It is something that blesses their actions rather than guides and transforms them. 
It is, in a sense, a civic religion. It's a part of who they are. And they don't like what's happening. And they literally freak out. And there is a riot dragging people to the, to the arena. And we'll look at it more in detail. But the, the gist of it is just this, brothers and sisters, that when the massive work of God impacts the world in a negative way from their perspective, they will seek to cut it out and to cut you down and to eliminate you. Because the massive work of God is very threatening. It's powerful. And the world is about its own interests of prosperity, self-protection, threat elimination. And we see this today, do we not? Again, I don't mean to, to be all political today, but it just so happens that these things fit. The whole furor and outcry about the U.S. Roman Catholic bishops daring to consider disciplinary practices against President Biden because of his outspoken views in favor of abortion. This, everyone's going, oh, they're politicizing it. They're, they're doing the very opposite of politicizing the issue. They're taking a principled stand. They're like, this man has risen to a position of power. Do we really believe what we have professed to believe for decades now and have marched for and invested tons of money in fighting for life, or do we not? Can we allow someone to continue to come into the church and take part in a sacrament that is symbolic of repentance and obedience to Jesus if that person is going to be outspoken in rebellion against the very thing that the church teaches. I am not a Roman Catholic, and there are obviously problems and differences that we have with them, but do you see how commendable that is? It is anything but political. It is taking a principled position stand for something that churches believed for hundreds of years in the dignity of human life. And what happens in the world is it is painted in any way but that, right? They're haters. They're, they're seeking their own political advantage. And actually, they're putting themselves at risk with the world around them and within their own organization. That's what the world does, brothers and sisters. When the massive work of God bumps up against the world, the world wants to cut it out. But it's not just the world, right? We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. You need not fear him, but the world is in his sway. And he'll send the whispers here and there. And there's enough truth in with the lies that he's very cunning and manipulating. So, we need to be very aware of that. And in a sense, right, anything that God's working in is going to be both helpful in the reality of it, right? And both harmful from the perception of the world. Because God is always doing good. God is always about trying to bring life and hope to the world. And sometimes the world will align with that and see that that is good. And sometimes the world will say, no, that's too threatening. I don't want to give up this pet sin or desire.
But that's where God comes. That's how God works. And the reality is that sometimes the massive work of God seems to help in the eyes of the world. Sometimes it seems to hurt in the eyes of the world. But what is always going on is that the massive work of God is aimed at the hearts of human beings. That ultimately that's what God is interested in. The world values self-preservation and protection, elimination of threats. The world values personal gain and his own prosperity. God wants your life and your hope and your prosperity. God wants you to have peace and hope and life. God wants your relationships to be healthy and prosperous. God is always coming from that perspective. And all that he's doing in the world is working together for the good of his people. And we see that here in this passage, right? That those are God's values. And what happens is when God bumps up, not merely bumps up, but penetrates into your heart, there is a transformation that happens. And we see it, and we'll dig some more into the beginning of chapter 19 in, in coming weeks. I don't have time to deal with, with the, the tongues and all of that. But do you notice that what happens is another outpouring, essentially like Acts 2 and like later on in uh, Acts uh, 8, I think is when that, that happens again, or 11 maybe? That, that is ripples going out from Pentecost, saying this is a real transformation. That the Holy Spirit has come upon these people. That the kingdom of God is now ruling and reigning in their hearts. Which is ultimately what the massive work of God is about. Is that the world might be rightly aligned under Him. And as he comes into your heart, that is exactly what he is about doing. And that massive work only comes by the Holy Spirit. And we read that passage early in the service of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. A similar promise with a different flavor in Ezekiel 36. It's what Jesus speaks about in John 3 to Nicodemus about how you must be born again and speaks of the Spirit blowing where He will. It's what Jesus is symbolizing as He calls forth dead Lazarus from the tomb and gives him new life. It's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, brought you to life. In Jesus. Right? What the world lacks, even as it understands the helpful acts of God and it perceives some as hurtful, what the world lacks is that connection with God. It, the world does not experience that work the way you, Christian, do. And the interesting thing is, as we think about those massive trees on that street I was talking about, there's a wonderful promise in Isaiah 61 that so clearly points to Jesus. He even mentions it in Luke chapter 4. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called. Do you know what's next? So they will be called oaks of righteousness. So the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because this, this is the reality. That the massive work of God ultimately in the world and is, is you. Is God in your heart transforming and changing you to be different than the world around you. And sometimes the world is going to say, wow, that's really cool. I like how, you know, you're much easier to get along with. They might even credit it to your uh, wife who you hadn't met when you actually were changed, right? I told you guys that story before. Right? The world doesn't make sense of it. They don't say, oh, that's Jesus. They can't. It's like, no, no, I don't want to hear that. But I like what you've become. Or other times they say, you know what? You're just a hater. You're just a bigot. You're just a misogynist. You're just a homophobe. You're just a whatever. When really, God has got a hold of your heart. And if he does, no matter what they say, you can have this peace that says, you know what? I am, I am striving to live out what God says. That no matter your physical size, that you will stand against the temptations. And when you fail, you will grow even stronger because it brings you closer to the Jesus who forgives you. Because God's values and interests are so much about you prospering and thriving and flourishing and living and hoping that God has sent his son into this world to take away your sin and your guilt and your shame. That in effect on that tree that was not so physically mighty, that on that tree the massive work of God was consummated that the Son of God, fully God, fully man, would take the sin of the world upon his shoulders and to bear it as only God could and to put it to death and bury it in a tomb and rise victorious. That that cross might rise towering massively over all of history, backwards and forwards and forever. That ultimately... The massive work of God is always pointing to that cross and being worked out in those people who are united to that Jesus who died on that cross and is risen and now have his spirit, the Holy Spirit, working in them that they would be oaks of righteousness. The planting of the world. That that massive act of God being God in this groaning world is God making you more like Jesus. Will you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus. We must confess that like those, those massive trees that I saw, you, you, your work does bump up. We see it in the world as they exploit it. We see it in the world as, as they try to chop it down. But, oh, Lord, we, we even do the same things. Oh, Lord, we'll, we'll make possession of the Holy Spirit an achievement to unlock that we might level up to some greater holiness. Oh, Lord, we'll turn your law into our master and make us feel better compared to other people. We'll turn your grace into license that we can do whatever we want. And we will exploit you, each other, anyone, Lord Jesus. Forgive us, transform us, and continue that good work in us. Oh, Lord, that your cross would be massive in our lives, both in our righteousness and good deeds, which are like filthy rags, and in our repentance, which points back to you and your great forgiveness, that always through us would be Jesus on that cross, resurrected, reigning and ruling and coming again, O Lord, that that true and living God, that massive work, once for all accomplished, would be working in us forevermore. We pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.